Welcome to another episode of Darren Batchelder's Multifamily Real Estate Investing Show. Today we have an extraordinary guest with us, Gabriel Kraft. With a decade of experience, Gabriel has not only built a substantial portfolio, but he has also dedicated himself to helping others achieve financial freedom through passive income. Let's learn why he believes now is a great time to be buying multifamily in the Texas market. But before we get started, if you're like the majority of high net worth individuals focused on preserving your capital and building your wealth in real estate, visit darrenbatchelder.com forward slash investor call and schedule your discovery call now. This episode is sponsored by Cashflow Portal, real estate syndication software that accelerates capital raising. I'm both an LP and a GP in many multifamily deals. I've used many different software applications for the capital raising process, and I like Cashflow Portal the most. I'm so confident in the software and the Cashflow Portal team that I've become an investor in the company. If you are a syndicator looking for a software platform, then let the Cashflow Portal team know that you heard about them on Darren's podcast and you will automatically receive three months off an annual contract. You can find the company at cashflowportal.com. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Gabriel Kraft. Gabriel, appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much, Darren. This is awesome. Absolutely. So you may also hear me call him Gabe. You know, that's the name he kind of goes by most of the time. Gabriel is his, his formal name. But um, so we know each other because we're both part of the same multifamily mentorship group, um, the Brad Sumrock group out of Dallas. And uh, we were part of a, the same deal together. Um, early on and you know he's been off to the races since so I'm excited to hear what he's got going on so Gabe share with the listeners how many properties and how many units you're invested in all right uh, absolutely Darren gosh this is such an honor um, she, Darren's so smooth he says we were in a deal together I was actually an investor in Darren's deal and he was <laughs> one of the first people to let me come in as a passive I was so honored and to watch him just master the craft in such a short amount of time. So as an insider, I can very easily say that if you haven't downloaded this stuff or gotten on board with Darren's deal, he's an amazing asset manager. For me though, I have come quite a long ways since I first passively invested with Darren in, in, in 2021, sorry, in 2018, excuse me. Um, and I'm on my fourth deal as a GP. Uh, we're about to close deal five and six in a couple days. So by the time this comes out, um, I will be on deal five and six. Roughly 640 units right now. We're adding another 195 units with deal five and six. So I'll be a little over 830 units um, in a couple weeks. And it's all been in Texas. Uh, we, I love the Lone Star State. I live here in Dallas. We're you know, kind of not too far from where Darren's at. And um, you know, we did three deals in Dallas so far and one in San Antonio. All, you know, 89 units or bigger or larger, just kind of upscale. Um, and that's that's been in 
the syndication realm. Before that, if you went way further back, I did have a couple of multifamilies, but it was back in 2016 when I had just my own own money and I wanted to invest in my own stuff that I owned by either by myself or with my brother. So I had two six unit apartment complexes out of state. It wasn't in Texas. And um, that was a learning lesson that kind of made me realize that I needed to reach out to people like Darren and sort of learn what is this whole syndication business. So thank you for having me. That's awesome. Absolutely. I'm excited to have you. So um, one, be interested in understanding your background um, prior to getting into to full-time investing. And then secondly, um, you know, would love to, to know kind of your mindset. Like you had two six-unit deals that were out of state and you, you knew you wanted to get into the, the multifamily large space and, you know, you started to passively invest, but now you're in six deals, 830 units. Like I'd like to understand your perspective as to, did you realize that you were going to be doing that? You know, into I, these large deals. I like to think that I channeled the energy of one of the greatest to ever play in the space. Um, but it's probably a little delusional for me. Um, I was at the university of Michigan business school, just sort of reconsidering my career 2013 to 2015. Um, had recently married, was about to start a family and came out of business school in 2015 totally different than I had gone into business school. Going in, I thought I was going to stay in education, nonprofit, kind of save the world one cause at a time. And I really fell in love through business school with this concept of how much value can be added in the private sector. And I, I truly believe that. I think people give the private sector such a hard time, but it is one of the best ways to add value to people. If they're willing to pay you, they're getting more value than what they're paying you. And I think that's just such a beautiful aspect and scalable aspect and while I was there, I was studying with this cool group and we went out to Chicago and I met Sam Zell and we interviewed oh, him. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. Just me and six other guys and our professor oh, who used to cool. work with them. Uh, our, our professor used to serve, you know, one of the many investment entities that Sam kind of went after. One of my amazing professors at the University of Michigan got us access to him. And we were studying activist investing, which at the time was kind of hot and it was a unique little narrow place. But we met him at his um, at his offices, and as I don't know if you guys know, an equity residential. Sam's company is one of the you know, has at times been number one, two, or three in terms of uh, the multifamily holding space. He, I, I, some people say, he's the grandfather and created sort of the REIT, the concept of the REIT, because um, he had a legal background and kind of you know went into that side of the space. But he just looked at me with those crazy piercing blue eyes and said, "Look, I I show up at seven and I leave at seven p.m." it's clearly not for the money. I love what I do. And that I felt like that translated to me a little bit. I really took a lot of interest in learning commercial real estate, started studying under a guy named Peter Allen at the university of Michigan, who gave us access to like his philosophy of like buying commercial real estate and turning around little neighborhoods in Detroit at the time. And so it just was a cool introduction. And I came out listening to all the podcasts possible, fell in love with the, you know, the concept of apartment syndication but was still afraid, right? I still thought I should just do this with my own money like so many others. So I started in single family, hard-headed. I just want my own money in these deals. And we scaled up pretty quick. I, I send out flyers and, and direct to seller and creative financing. And we got up to 24 units. Two of those were six unit apartment complexes that we got off of an owner um, you know, for very little money in. And I just learned that the apartment business is more complicated than 
than what you hear on the podcast. <laughs> uh, I, what I love about your podcast, Darren, is like you bring on so many people that are willing to say, look, this is not a spectator sport. You got to dive in. And so, you know, I, I didn't learn that right away. It took me about um, one or two years after that, that point of graduating to kind of meet a good ecosystem, the same ecosystem Darren's a part of here in Dallas. I kind of came into happenstance by going to a meetup and then eventually got into a formal mentorship program where I learned that it is more complicated, but it's very achievable and very scalable and fun. And so I just fell in love with multifamily investing, um, was fortunate enough to be an asset manager in the core group for all of my deals. And what that means is, you know, I've never really just had the GP and title and name only. I've truly been able to learn the business alongside some of the smartest people um, that I've ever met. And it's just been an opportunity to hone the craft and get better at asset management or what you're supposed to be doing in this business from contract to close and thereafter. Um, and it's, it's that, that's huge. So, so one of the things you said was how much value can you provide? And you were, you were focused on, on, uh, getting into the nonprofit world. I, it makes me think of a conversation I had with somebody, um, here locally, who's not in the real estate space. Um, but I was having breakfast with him and he said, you know, I have enough business. Like I have enough. And I was in, you know, I kind of challenged him like, well, what if you were to, to think bigger and you doubled that and then you, Hey, you can, I know that you, you have a heart for a lot of different, you know, different cares in the world and, and you could help financially in those arenas. And that's kind of what I hear, heard you say, maybe I miss, you know, I misread it, but you can do something that you love with multifamily, make good money and still do help nonprofits financially. I'll take that even a step further. You can help people just right. by doing something that's amazing in the private industry, right? Now, if you make a lot of money and you choose to invest that in sort of a cause-related um, entity or organization or just a cause. I, I think that's really great. But I think a lot of people think, oh, I've got to generate the money so I can do good. And they forget the fact that by generating the money, they are doing good. And I guess, so what I'm trying to say is, I'll give you an example. We're about to take over this 195 unit asset. Now, no, no, no qualms about saying that the asset has been poorly managed. Okay. For right or for better or for wrong, for wrong, for bad luck or good luck or whatever it is the current, current owner is doing, I'm not saying they're a bad person, but they have not provided this community a true community. And my team is set up to make some money as, as asset managers and as general partners. We're going to make our limited partners as much money as we, as we can, you know, obviously within the rule book, the guidelines, but we're going to add a ton of value to the lives of the people that live there now and the people that live around that area in so many different ways. And if you remember that, I think it keeps you motivated to grow your business and put your soul into your business so that your customers are better off. I mean, I laugh a lot of times, like I think people give these big companies think I'll just pick on Amazon, Amazon, like they're this big behemoth corporate, you know, juggernaut. Oh, we should go after them. But the concept that I can push a button and have some socks delivered to my front door the next door. <laughs> right. Straight out of right. Distance, right? Right. You open up the door and it's sitting right there in a package for you. You didn't even have to go to the store. And so now I have more time to 
invest in my kids and invest in my business and invest in my whatever. So there's just, I think there is a lot lost in this concept of um, you either have to make money or do good. You do a lot of good and create a lot of value by having amazing businesses. And I think that that's something that I got more comfortable with um, learning from some people in, in my business school experience. And I've seen it real hand now that I have stepped away from the corporate world. I didn't actually give my full background. There's two pieces that I missed and that's that okay. I came out and was sort of white collar worker, um, grinding, you know, 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. I worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers as a consultant, which I loved, but takes a toll on you when you're trying to, um, you know, grow a family. So I would leave Sunday nights, go to like San Francisco or St. Louis or you know, Pittsburgh and work for a client and then come back home Thursday nights. And that was my life when I had like a newborn daughter and this wonderful wife to come home to. It was a pain in the butt, right? And then I transitioned. I was out. a PW alum a long, long oh, time no ago way. too. But, 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 on the, but on the audit side. Not yeah, yeah. You guys are the cool kids, right? Yeah. Just, yeah. Well, just I don't know about that. To say. Know. It's like the tax and audit guys are, yeah. are, so, are guys and gals are so, they're the cool kids at the, at the, at the firm. Uh, but then I transitioned out to a air quotes, cushier job and worked at uh, Salesforce, which is as good as it gets in the tech industry yeah. as far as Very cool. treating their employees well and having a really wonderful culture to work in. And the thing I took away with that, though, is like I grinded there for five years. I loved the people. I loved the experience. But it was still a job. And the lifestyle I wanted did not fit into that job at all. And the only way that I could see myself living the lifestyle I wanted was all these friends of mine, these Darren Batchelders, these Raj Guptas, you know, these, these guys that had done a really amazing job building a lifestyle through commercial real estate uh, investing. And so that's sort of why... I took every penny I could and it was cheap as possible during that time frame where I had a good job and I plugged it into smart investments, which the first one was with very, you. very, very smart. And you met, so, you know, if you're a listener and you don't know who Sam Zell is, I mean, uh, Sam Zell is like the number one commercial real estate guy out there. Um, he has uh, recently passed, unfortunately, but he is, um, by far the, the number one guy that people would point to. And he, he wrote a book. Um, I read his book, great book. Um, and, you know, he talks about problem solving, you know, and that's kind of what got him there. And, and you, Gabe, you mentioned um, my business partner on that, on that deal. We were both involved with um, Raj Gupta. And he told me, you know, he was a lot more experienced than, than I was. I was junior and, he said, Darren, real estate investing is about problem solving. And Amen. It's kind of did, I didn't get it at the time. You know, I'm like, you know, isn't it just location, location, location? And when you get into each of these deals, you realize that each deal has different problems that need to be solved. And, and you have to pay attention to it and, and figure out a solution. It's fun because it's never the same problem though, right? <laughs> like yeah. you think it is, you think you've seen the problem before and then it presents itself and you're like, oh, this is unique. So it never, it stays dynamic. If you want to do something that's going to stay fun and dynamic, it is, it is a different kind of fun and not everybody's ready for that kind of fun, but every day right. is unique. I had a coffee meeting this morning and the guy said to me, you know, hey, I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn the business and trying to, you know, when do you know that you know enough? And I'm like, I don't think you do. Like there's, there's so many new challenges that get thrown your way. But, you know, I have heard, I have interviewed people that have been in the business for a long time and there are situations that they're like, oh, this is another one of those. This is how, how I can handle that. 
um, or they know somebody else in that they've um, they've come across that situation, so they can make a phone call and say, "Hey, I know you were dealing with this. How did you manage through it?" And then quickly, within a five minute phone call, just because they know another operator that dealt with that situation, they can get an answer on you know a possible solution pretty quickly. Let me let me pause on that point because I, yeah. I know that for years I've listened to this podcast as somebody that wanted to kind of be in the game. And I've listened to one of these wonderful guests that you had. And there is really smart people, right? And we're smart from other pieces or walks of life. But smart will only take you so far um, without experience. And so when you do get into the business, I think one of the things that I made a quick pivot on was thinking – you know, I just show up as the smartest guy in the room. I think it's be the best listener in the room. If you, if you come across people that have a depth of experience, those people are invaluable. And however you can continue to build that bridge, I think it's important. You know, there was a lot of asset management calls I was on with my first group of friends that I did a deal with and they become friends. We, we joke and we have our little WhatsApp groups that we chat in, but I thought, you know, I was Mr. Sharp PwC consultant at the time, or actually, no, sorry, I was, I was at Salesforce at the time. And I thought I'd be able to bring tons of value and I could by doing the dirty work. Right. But when it came time to having the discussion with the property management company, a lot of times I didn't even know the questions to ask if that makes sense. And there's just so much beauty in having experience and having had some at bats. So now that I've seen that a few times through, it's so cool to see uh, an ability to kind of pass that back to people that are just brand new on my like later deals when they, you know, I, I can try to add some value and say, hey, here's, here's a question I've seen somebody smarter than me and more experienced than me ask before. The point is that I think have some humility going into your first few GP deals if you're just getting started, because I'm just barely beginning my learning mission in this space. And there's so much I don't know, but I've already seen that what I thought I knew is different than really where, where when you have some experience, you're actually going to be sort of steering the conversations and steering the decisions about the business. That, that's so, that's such a good point um, is, you know, learning from other people that are more experienced and what questions to ask. Because that question, you know, one change in a question can make the world a difference in terms of getting the, the information back and having a different perspective on how to handle a situation. Um, the other thing that you, you know, you didn't say, but you said before was that you, that you were afraid. You know, I think that there's a lot of people that read books, that listen to podcasts, that, you know, some will even go out to meetup groups, but they're afraid to actually do something. And it's different when you actually do it, you know, and look, you can, you're not going to have it all figured out. I kind of say like, think about when you had kids. I mean, like, you, yeah, sure. You could read the book. Like, what? I don't know. I even know if that's still around. What to what to expect when you're expecting? Yeah, it is. Still it's the, still the, we the still book. go to it. Yeah. Um, but you know, you could read that. But like, you as a parent, you're there. You're never completely ready, right? Never. You're never completely ready, and it's the same. And you know, I'm not saying don't get educated. You should get educated, but at some point, you got to pull the trigger. My son is 23, and he's buying his first house and he just went into contract and all of a sudden he's like 
Dad, I can't believe I'm getting all these phone calls. Like, there's so many things that I have to do with the inspection and the appraisal and this and that. And the other. I'm like, yeah, that's just the start of it. Like, no matter what happens, you're learning so much. And that, that happens when you do it. So now you've been through, you know, you're going on your fifth and sixth deal. So, hey, one of the things I wanted to get from you, because you are in the Texas market, is, you know, kind of talk about what you think is going to happen for the Texas market going into 2024. Oh, yeah, I mean, Texas. I love Texas, and it has been the darling of investors' hearts for quite a while, but it has faced uh, some headwinds. And so and I got I got some, some interesting things happening right now. I'll just kind of call on three items that I think should be top of mind for people. Um, one, I think good news is coming in that uncontrollable expenses are so big. And we all know Texas market, property taxes, insurance – really been a big force for the headwinds that we've experienced in the operation sides of things. What I'm seeing right now, like this month and moving forward, is that we're sort of peaked out, right? 2023 was probably the peak of the insurance and the taxes elements. Um, not everywhere. I think there's a little more to go on the coasts and potentially still a little risk out there that insurance companies are still going to look at those double digit increases. But if you look Inland, I think Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, we're sort of peaked out for this crazy experience we've had every year as operators where you're getting double digit increases in both of those expenses at the same time every single year consistently and sometimes not low double digits, right? <laughs> Definitely right. met more than one operator whose insurance renewal was 30, 40, 50% higher than it had been the year before. And, you know, the business becomes a little untenable at the purchase prices of 2021 and 2022 when you have those uncontrollables. So good news. I think we're, we're seeing this year definitely for taxes in Dallas and in parts of San Antonio um, and probably for insurance. Although to be conservative, you probably want to learn from our lessons the last few years and have a little bit more room. So why do you think that? The main reason is that the prices went up so much for insurers and we didn't have huge name storms and huge, uh, claims and they've made adjustments to what they're carving out on the insurance side. So you'll see a pretty, when you go to get your renewal this year, if you're currently an operator, you're probably going to have, at least in Dallas, you're going to have a 4% wind and hail deductible. That's an optional add-on rather, rather than just your standard, like 2%. And so you're going to kind of be making a decision. It's basically what I would call changing your normal wind and hail insurance into tornado disaster insurance. Cause there's no other reason to pay that much to make a claim unless you've got like full blown destruction on your, on your roofs um, or something worse on the asset related to wind and hail. So they're, they're making adjustments so they can make money, but you can already see that the people who came into these markets who never got the pain of the huge payouts in 2020, 2021, 2022, like state farms, a good example. Last year there, they came in, scooped some, some clients and have not really had a bad season. So they actually went down in pricing this year across the board for all my friends that were smart enough or lucky enough or timely enough to get into state farm. Um, they kind of went down five, six, 7%, which tells me that like the other people that boosted prices a lot on everybody are making money and that's good, right? What happens is when they make money, a few more providers come in, you know, a few people get a little more competitive at renewal. And so I, I do foresee us sort of stabilizing on the insurance side and for taxes, the reality is you, property prices or property values are coming down. 
And yet they're, they actually had about, I think it was a $40 billion number was the number that they over, it's a fancy way of saying they, they over, um, they over, they got too much revenue from the state of Texas through property taxes for doing what it needs to be done. Like our roads, our schools, all that fun stuff depends on these property taxes, but they took in too much because the values had gotten so high and the percentages have stayed the same. They relieved that by sort of tapering down the percentage that they take. But I just, I, I see with my specialists that specialize in those areas as an operator, we've gotten to know quite a few. It's pretty consistent feedback that, Although I wouldn't like not have some cushion in your expenses, there's a very strong chance that this 2023 year was a peak year in those two areas. And it's going to go a little bit back to normalcy or a lot back to normalcy if you're on the taxes side of things moving forward. So that's good news. Number one. Good news. I saw that when I, I, so I lived in South Florida and then when, when a hurricane came through and, and the insurance companies got whacked, they, you know, there were a lot of insurance rates that doubled. And, you know, there were a few years that was, it was really tough on the insurance side. But then, like you said, as they raised their rates, then little by little, some other insurance companies started to come in and then the competition started to bring rates back down. So um, whether that happens in 2024 or, um, you know, later, that is bound to happen. You know, is, is if the margins are good, other, other companies are going to come in and start writing those policies. Heck Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's just it's the cycle and flow of things that those experienced people have that been on here, you know, they've seen three, four, five, six cycles or whatever it is um, that, you know, I think if we all got into this when I did just I'm, I'm guilty. Right. When I got in, when it kind of got hot. Right. So uh, we just have to be aware that um, kind of go back now and start to look at the classics of like what yeah, happened in these cycles when things go up and down. Try to figure out what happened in 2000, what happened in the 90s, what happened in the 80s. Right. And try to figure out. Um, what it's going to look like, because it does seem to repeat itself, particularly in commercial real estate. Uh, item number two is uh, I'll just pick on sort of this concept of like, is this a good time or a bad time, you know, for for Texas? And I'll say it's it's kind of both. Um, I think if you currently own assets, it's tough. <laughs> if you're looking at buying assets, it's a stellar time. I, I truly believe that in Texas, people are going to look back on 2024. And, and like you talk about the returns for people who bought in 24, 24, and they're like, oh, that doesn't count. That's like unfair. I think I heard somebody say that on stage at a Marcus Miller chapter, so I'm still, <laughs> still, I, I think it's going to totally be appropriate because it, it's very reminiscent of like when people bought in 2009, the returns they had, people go, oh, well, that doesn't mean that person's a great operator. That's just as they bought at the right time. I think that's going to be the picture for 2024 because we have this unique situation where it is actually still tough. So there is a lot of fear. And a lot of that comes from, We've got a lot of new properties coming online in Austin, Dallas, San Antonio, and Houston. Like all the construction takes three years to, to come onto the market. And there was tons of stuff being started in 2020, 2021, and you know, continuing to 2022. So we're going to actually still have issues as, as far as new, new build coming online in 2024 and 2025, even though it was a lot in 2023. But so let, let me, let me ask you that, uh, you know, because you, you're bringing it up. Yeah. Um, what's your take? So on number two, good time or bad time, you're saying, you know, it's a tough time for, for current deals that are already in place. Um, but for new buys, it's a, it's a great time. Um, do you think it's the same for A, B, and C? Or do you think that there's a differentiator? 
I think it's the same for A, sorry, for B and C. I think for A, you have to be very mindful and just be working with operators that aren't just buying it because it's an A. There was a unique time period in 2022, 2023, where the cap rates were so compressed that, I mean, I think you've talked about this a lot, Darren, where the cap rates were so compressed, it made a lot more sense to buy A if you could find a good deal or even build A if you wanted to. Um, right now, so much new is coming online. We're already starting to see some of the data come back from like CoStar and other sources where that middle chunk, the Bs are very resilient and C has actually had the most sort of stability, even though, you know, headache factor people, you can't overlook the headache factor of the C. But as far as like the nuts and bolts of the math on it, I think the A's are a little more potentially at risk. It doesn't mean though that you're not going to find A's that are trading at the loan amount or lower, right? There's just, there's opportunities everywhere because of the uniqueness of how some people were funding their deals a couple of years ago. So I would keep an open mind. I have a friend right now who's down in Houston and oh, I've seen a few friends actually that are scooping up A's at a crazy basis and they're already built. There's no risk in the construction side of it. And they're in great neighborhoods. Like the bar for what kind of a neighborhood you've got to be able to scoop these things up in is like increased. And so you're kind of getting the best of all worlds. If you can raise enough money on these bigger things, I actually think they make a ton of sense. Now you better raise more money than you need today because you're going to have a couple of years of hardship. It's going to be new stuff coming online, competing with you. And it's going to be through 2025 that there's just new stuff that was built that'll come online. I would say that the flip side of that is because rates are so high right now, permits aren't getting created. And so aren't, aren't, there's not a lot of projects that are sort of starting right now. So three right. years out, there's sort of a dearth. They're kind of falling behind yet again in multifamily construction. And that would assume one could assume that you would be able to push rents on your, on your existing A's, B's and C's um, and get stability and sort of occupancy up. So I say a lot to say that if you can have a mindset of seeing where things are headed, you can get at it on a good basis and really operate well Great. But that gets me sort of the third point about Texas, which is I've seen property management, which I think is, I, I'm not shy about saying it's 75% of the success in any of my deals. I don't know about your deals. I don't know about other people's deals, but 75% of the success is who's sitting in that office when they, the, the tenant comes in to rent it and who's serving those maintenance requests when the tenant has some issues. I think the actual property management itself goes uh, such a long way. And it's pretty poor net net in Texas right now. I think that there's, there's not great providers through and through. I think there's a lot of people that got into the business that have either done well and then tried to scale and failed at that and should have maybe stayed smaller or, um, new people kind of coming in because there's a demand for the space and then they see it's such a hard job and they leave. So it's just third party property management has been a real struggle for me and all my friends and anybody I've known throughout the state of Texas. And I think that's the major risk point. If you're going to be an investor, you've got to find a way to control property management better than most. And so that's what I put a lot of energy into over the last um, year of, of finding a way to not be at risk because even the best third party property managers, the best like 10 out of 10 in terms of third party, they still feel like a C or C minus in terms of their service level. And it's just so different then, you know, if you have some alignment between the ownership and the property management company, which can only be achieved through either a partnership or creating your own. Right. And I think that's sort of where we get left is like, that's such a tough thing to do. 
some people do have great third-party property management, but I just haven't seen it. Yeah, the, those are great points. Um, let me talk on the on the property management, and then I, I do want to go back to number two a little bit. Um, but on property management, you know, I heard somebody say this to, to me once, somebody who has a lot of experience, and I've seen it play out in, uh, you know, my weekly asset management calls, is when you have a third-party property management company, as an ownership group, there's a ton of things that you can ask them to improve on. But you have a weekly call, and if you ask them for too many things and you don't prioritize the items that are going to have the most bang for the buck and that are going to have the biggest impact on and both financial results and also uh, livability and, and improving the community-wise, um, the property management company gets confused. You know, they have too many... So as I think that's part of our job as the ownership group is to narrow down that list, you know, have them focus on, you know, the top two, three, four items. And then, you know, when they, when they see improvement in those areas, then move on to the next. Because if you give them a long laundry list, they don't know if 10 on the list is, you know, valued the same as, as number two or three. Um, that's just, just two things that came up while you said that one, just staying at the executive level, which I'm stealing from a friend this weekend was up on stage talking about asset management. He was just saying as asset managers, we have to stay at an executive level. Like don't get in there and go chew out your leasing agent, you know, cause something's not going on. Right. Right. Like have a constructive, thoughtful process. If you're, if you're in turnaround, right. If everything's stable, everything's great. You know, it's, it's, you're in, it, everything gets easier. I'm talking about for those hard turnarounds where, where things are hard right. pressed because you just maybe got to notice that your insurance and your taxes are doubling and your occupancy dropped five percentage points or something that's you know out of its range of, of what you had anticipated. Um, so staying at the executive level, really working with the regional, you know, with the leadership at the property management company and being like an executive would, like a CEO would. CEO is not going to give a list of 50,000 things that needs to get done. If they are, the company's probably not doing great. But a real good executive is going to inspire people to do a great job on the top three things so well so that they're going to naturally do the other five or six things that people wanted to get done because they're a great, inspiring sort of executive level decision maker where it's very clear on what's supposed to be done. The, the thing I'll add on top of that is that oh man, I just, I'll just come out and say it. I often do deals with lots of GPs. I'm not shy about that. I am notoriously bad about that. And I'm trying to get better at that as I become more experienced. Uh, it has allowed me to learn from amazing people, but it has also put me in positions where, you know, you might get on a call and there's three or four people talking, which is two or three people too many. And I think on any good deal where I'm a passive investor or now as a GP, it's going to be crystal clear who the one leader is as you engage with the property management company. So I think if you can do what Darren was talking about a second ago, which is be really clear on like your three priorities, right? One is the priority and then two and three are behind one in exactly the order in which you give it. Like let people know what you expect and don't try to give a laundry list and then make sure it's one person delivering that message. I think that's a good thing for any or organization or group that's taking these things on to have. So even if it's like, we're talking about the corporate level, 
ownership group, like that's the same process. It should always be one clear set of leaders because these are not folks that are making $150,000 a year that are over on your property. I don't care how big your property is. I don't think I've ever seen a number like that for an onsite. It's always somebody that's making, at least in Texas, so 45, 55, $65,000 a year that's running the whole show. That's running a multi, 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 multi-million dollar business. And so, you know, you've got to make sure that your expectations match what that person can provide you. And to do that, it needs to be more like McDonald's level instructions for your employees, not, not McKinsey, which is like a crazy fancy consulting company level instructions mm. for your, for your employees. Not, I would say not only that, and, and, and it's not everybody does this, but I think it's, I've seen it be, be worth very, very, very worthwhile is, is to set incentive programs for, you know, the, the leasing manager, you know, if, um, you know, if you, if you're leasing up, you know, get to this occupancy and keep, you know, delinquency below this amount. And you're going to, you're going to make that much more that month, you know? Um, and just that little incentive program, you know, gives them that added incentive and you guys are aligned now um, versus just coming in and checking the box for, you know, for a job. And I'm not saying this works also just to have, because I love that. It's, it's about like, you've got to understand what, what values they're looking for you. What are they looking for in this relationship? It's just a relationship, right? I think one right. other final thing that they're also looking for is respect. And yes. I've, just, I've, we've gotten so far with amazing, such amazing people doing this hard work. You have to be a special kind of person to take 65 K. It's hard, man. Headache, right. You know, you've been in there when that tenant comes in and they're just crazy and difficult. <laughs> and so to do that all day, every day, you takes a special kind of person. If you can build, a relationship with your property management company that, that represents you or them directly at, you know, throughout the process as, as the, maybe the property manager interacts with you. It just to respect them and do the little things that are thoughtful to show that we're real people and we care and recognize what they're doing. It, it is killer. It is killer. And that, that's the way to do a much better job. I'm not saying that that relieves all the issues that come with the headwinds and multifamily right now. No, but the, you know what? A lot of the people in the industry, like you said, I mean, they don't feel respected by the, by, they're the on-site person, but they're working for the property management company. The property management company is hired by the, the asset managers, by the ownership group. And a lot of times they don't even feel respected by their, their company, let alone the ownership group. So if you can treat them well, they are going to, you know, People are people, man. You, you treat people well and they're going to want to perform for you. Like, I feel like I, we had a good incentive program and, you know, the 25 bucks, you know, higher we were than some of our competition on the leases made a big difference. But the Trace Leches cake, cake that cost us $20 that we brought in on a Friday was like the, the deal maker, right? That got our occupancy into the high 90s, you know, collections all of a sudden shot up. And it's like, it actually has a business impact to do cool little things, you know, for your onsite team and, and treat them like the valuable people that they are. Um, I, I really do That's think that it's 75% of the successes, like that room of people, you know, that comes into the front of the, the leasing office at the times, whether they're outside coming in as maintenance people or sitting there all day as leasing and, and management. Well, it also, there's a lot of, you know, people in this industry that bop, you know, from one because they're not that highly paid from, from one property to another property and keeping a good leasing manager and a good 
uh, maintenance manager on site, you know, if you treat them really well, that's a risk for them to go someplace else, you know, for, for a dollar more an hour. And so that, you know, that's a financial benefit of doing it as well. But, you know, look, we're just people um, and people should be treated, treated well. Hey, one thing you didn't mention, um, but I want to highlight is I love these top three things, um, you know, top of mind items. But if you are, you know, going back to what you said, you think it's a great time to be buying in 2024, you know, I'm hearing people say anywhere from 20 to 30%, you know, off um, from where the height of the market in the end of 20, uh, 2021, beginning of 2022. Um, but the, another thing, another factor is, okay, you've got these uncontrollable expenses. So you've got high property taxes and high insurance rates. You've got really high interest rates. You're putting all of that into your underwriting. So if the deal works and gives a good return with all those higher costs, and then as you implement the business plan, those costs actually come down, that's like gravy. Like you, you, did, you didn't plan for that. You know, in your underwriting, you've got these high insurance costs and all of a sudden insurance costs come down. You've got these high interest rates and then all of a sudden interest rates come back down. Like that, those things are, it's, it's the same as what happened back in, you know, 2020 and 2021 with rent, right? People were, were putting in underwriting of three or 4% and then all of a sudden, you know, rent went up by eight, 10, 12% and they, everybody blew their numbers out of the water. The same thing can happen based on having lower expenses. It gives me butterflies in my stomach, Darren. It could, I get excited, okay? It's a unique opportunity to once again potentially be on the front lines of some tailwinds. Um, now, doesn't mean it's going to show up. And No, but you're in a unique position because you don't have, like, there, I know a lot of syndicators that have a lot of deals and they're having to manage all these deals so they don't have the bandwidth to kind of take on a bunch of new stuff. So. You're in a unique position to be able to do that. I'm telling you, if you're in that position, and this kind of goes out to those folks that are maybe not brand new, because I think brand new, you should be a little bit knowledge. Like part of the reason people are the problem right now is because so many brand new people jumped into deals and got in over their skis and were able to sort of overpay and under deliver. Um, but yeah, if you're in a good position and you've put in the time and are ready to move, like don't sit on the sidelines. I think. The other thing I'll steal from a big Marcus Millichap forum that we went to is, you know, historically a lot of the a lot of the wealth is created in these cycles on the beginning part of the pendulum swing. So if you took like a clock and you put noon at the top and six uh, p.m. or a.m. whatever six on the bottom, it's and as you went around the clock, let's say it's like oh okay this was like the really good times you know one two three four five you know, six is going to be the best. Nine is going to be sort of where we're reaping the fall, like at the, the peak and then noon again, to be bad times. I think as it swings, like around, we'll call it, you know, four or five o'clock on the pendulum, as it's starting to get really good is where the fortunes are made. If you wait until you see it's at the best part of the market, you're usually a little too late to get 
the fortune building portion. You might get a deal, a good deal or two, and you're still trying to scale up when actually things are starting to tick back to bad again. And that's not really where the fortunes are made in the cycle. So I guess just have a little bit of a leap of faith for, for what it's worth, at least in Texas. Um, I've never seen deal flow like what we're getting. And I mean, that's actually a bad statement, right? Cause I haven't been around that long, but my sense is I tracked the single family through the last recession and sort of studied the stock market pretty heavily, you know, during the early two thousands and you know, where we're at right now, it's special. There's something special about it. Um, it won't last forever. And, you know, at least in Texas where the, the jobs and the economy and the population growth are substantiating it, I think in 2026, we're going to see some significant opportunities to out deliver what we thought we could, but there's even butterflies in my stomach because of what just Darren mentioned. Expenses actually are going to be the new, new hot topic to go, oh, wow, we budgeted X and delivered Y. Now, for those of you that are having engagement with your brokers, still tell them that there's no reason for you to go any lower on the expenses than these you know, strong, conservative underwriting uh, requirements that you've kind of got to stick to because we don't know that and we don't want to get, we don't always want to take on as buyers like all of the risk on a deal. So we got to de-risk it by having smart underwriting. But I think you'll be able to still make the deals pencil. Uh, just It's going to come down to purchase price and, and willingness to operate better than, than other people and sort of over-deliver on your, on your revenue and, and find some, some potential upside on your expenses in terms of just it doing better than anticipated. So I'm, I'm very excited. It literally butterflies in my stomach. Look, the, the, the mentality has completely shifted where before, in order to win a deal, you kind of had to put every single nook and cranny in there and have the deal work out perfect. To, to make it work. And now people are like, there's uncertainty. So in order to buy a deal, people are padding things, you know, padding their expenses and, and keeping rents low in the underwriting. And all of those factors, you know, if those change and become positive and you own the asset, that's when good things happen. I think about like the single family world and, you know, there's not a lot of transactions happening in single family world right now uh, because of interest rates shot up so much. And I think it's a good thing. I think the single family investing was done really conservative and can stay consistently conservative. And so you don't have people flipping houses where the numbers don't make any sense as much, but in commercial real estate, we did get a little out of whack. We, we saw the dollars, we saw the syndication, we saw the ability to scale up with sort of other people's money. And I think there were too many people that didn't, really go in cautiously and intelligently. And, and it's unfortunate because I think moving forward, we have an opportunity to right some of those wrongs, really kind of know our craft a little better heading forward. And this is, you know, hopefully we don't have these big swings where people lose a lot of money because I'm buying from a lot of times people that are losing chunks of money that they probably shouldn't have lost or big chunks from, from either their own coffers or other people's. And I think that moving forward, uh, we don't have to do that. If we had said no a little more to, to these sale prices that were, and, and also done a little more, had a little more knowledge about how to properly insure floating rate debt. But we have a chance to learn about that now and move forward. So I think, you know, moving forward, I'm very excited for these, the basis at which we're picking up some of these deals moving forward. It's just been unique. I don't know. I know what else to say, especially in Dallas where there was 30 or 40 offers for not very good deals and not very good neighborhoods with bad business plans that needed 
10 things to go right. And, you know, people get tired of losing. So their, their price just starts going up by the, the, the fifth or sixth time you lose after all the underwriting. Now we don't have to do that. We can go back to the basics, go back to the historical numbers, be smart about your underwriting. Don't get too aggressive and you're still going to win. And so I think this is really a special time. I got the butterflies for at least the next six, seven, eight months. Yeah. And I, I could say, you know, the, I'm in a lot of deals, um, both as an LP and, and GP and, you know, the deals that are having challenges are the ones that were bought in 2021 and 2022. And, um, you know, the ones that were bought, you know, after the cycle kind of turned, say in 20, you know, 2023, those deals are doing just fine. Um, it's the ones that didn't, you know, they didn't know that interest rates were going to go up by the most they, they, you know, had in 40 years, you know, um, they didn't know that insurance rates were going to go up by 50%, you know? Um, so that's impacting cash flow in a big way where, you know, look, if you're underwriting deals today, I mean, that's exciting to be able to put in all those numbers um, that are true numbers today and have the ability to go the other way and be a positive. So, hey, with closing remarks, um, what would you say, you know, let's talk about um, the passive investor that hasn't invested before. Like, what's your advice to them? I think there's five things you need to do before you passively invest that are super critical. Okay. You need to learn how to identify a good market and opportunity, right? You need to you need to listen to podcasts. You need to sort of dissect a deal with somebody that's done it before, like a neighbor or friend or somebody who's you know even trying to pitch you on a deal as long as they can really do a good job of dissecting. I think you need to learn what a good deal looks like. I think you need to respect, as a second thing, I think you need to respect like the person putting the deals together or the, the group putting the deals together. Respect how important the jockey is, not just the horse. Um, for example, my first passive investment was with Darren Batchelder. Best jockey out of all the jockeys that goes. He crushed well, it. He's saying that because he's on the podcast right now, right? No, 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 no. I've been saying that yeah. for years. I'm <laughs> saying that because of my, my near 3x multiple on my passive <laughs> investment that allowed me to jump into the business because I got such a strong return off of my first investments. Um, and again, I say that in, in juxtaposition to better neighborhood, picked a great asset in a great neighborhood, not as good operators. And they under-delivered. Um, you guys over-delivered. You pivoted better. You communicated You communicated better, so the whole experience was better. I think pick the jockey in addition to the horse, and I think you'll be in a really good spot. Um, you know, third, sort of you know, master, master this concept of, like, having investment criteria. Um, it, multifamily might not be the right solution even, but definitely within multifamily, there's so many outcomes you could be doing for cash flow, for tax benefits, for overall return. I'm 40, about to be 41. I'm here for overall return. I love the business. Um, and part, but part of my investments were to network partially with great people in my ecosystem. So Darren's investment was so that I could see how Darren communicates and see how his circle works and see how him and Raj tackle this business. Same thing with some of those other investments that maybe weren't as perfect. And so um, I think, you know, a third item would be just think about what your outcomes are um, in, in line and are they in line with whatever you're investing in. 
Uh, fourth one, you know, be be bullish while other people are being fearful. Now, don't sit on the sidelines. Like this is, it'd be, if you're going to look back and go, oh, this guy Gabe said it was going to be like 2009, and it was a lot like 2009, and I still sat there and and twiddled twiddled my fingers. And then the fifth thing is like, like they can get five percent in their cash in their savings account. They can't anymore. That lasted a little tiny while. It's like three and a half. <laughs> it's dipping down. We're starting to see like that that there's little windows like that to keep your dry powder dry. And look, for those of us that are in and we, we benefit from more funds coming in. It was easy for us to say like, oh, that's a silly idea. It's a really smart idea to sit until the time is right. What I'm saying as an insider in a great market like Dallas, the time is right. So don't, don't hesitate and wait till June, July, August, September, because you're going to have missed on the true part of the pendulum swing where most of your wealth will be created, where most of the crazy deals that I'm seeing, like the one I just put an LOI in on Friday that was for the loan amount on a perfectly good, amazing B-class deal in the heart of town. That's what we've all been looking for. Like it's a month away from being a 1990s deal. And I, it, it's there waiting for me with great debt to assume, actually. It's just there's weird things happening right now. It's a little wonky out there for the operators. And so us buyers get to take advantage. Um, and then, you know, the last piece is to stay committed to the craft, like, once you have your investment criteria, you know your market, you know what a good team looks like, and you're not afraid anymore, learn, 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 learn. Listen to Darren's podcast. There's there's tons of other information out there. There's really no excuse. Chat GPT can teach you more than some of the best gurus could te- teach you back in 2017, right? So like there's no, there's no, there's information is there. Now it's about time to take action. I, I love that. Um, you know, there's so much to learn, and there's like for me and you, we're still learning. Um, but I'm really glad. I was scared when I got involved five years ago, like. But I'm so glad that I that I did it because I've learned so much, and the returns have been you know pretty phenomenal. And that, like you said, there's some headwinds now, but um, I I also believe that Dallas is, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in three months or six months. But when I look three years, five years, 10 years down the road, I'm like, you know, I think Dallas is going to be a, you know, a great market to be in. So it could be the biggest, um, with that, the biggest Metroplex. It could, the jobs and growth are incredible. And, and even when we have recessions in other places, the recession, like the depth of recession, I think over the next five, six, seven years is going to be minimized by how robust Everything else here. You were, you were about to get us finished here, but I just you know, no. But you know, it's true though. I mean, there's there's companies that are moving here. They're not moving here for three months or six months. I mean, these are major corporations that are moving here. And one of the things that Dallas has is that is there's a lot of land still to expand to. So there's all this farmland that you know you could just keep going north, and you can keep going east, and you can keep going west, and you can keep going south. So you can keep expanding where there's a lot of other metroplexes where you can't do that. It's already built out and you have to tear things down to build. So Dallas is in a really, really good spot, I think. Hope we um, gave people some things to not be afraid about. You were, you were talking about how afraid you were. I was just laughing about literally you were the first PPM that I reviewed. So I had like <laughs> one of the best lawyers in the business walk me through in painstaking detail and I was like, and I must have mentally said the words, oh, crap, 70 times while he was going through it. And yet took the leap and made a big difference in my life. So 
And that, yeah, now you're 830 units, yeah, gonna, you know, yeah, in a yeah. matter of a few weeks. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. So, you know, with that, uh, listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. Hey, Gabe, if, if people want to get it, reach out to you, how, what's the best way for them to do that? I, I try to make it easy chat with Gabriel.com and I'm still a small fish in this business. So I have bandwidth and time to hop on with people do a 15 minute phone call or so, you know, get it kicked off, learn a little bit about people chat with Gabriel.com and get on my calendar. And we'll, we'll make it happen. Awesome. Gabriel, I really appreciate you sharing and I uh, look forward to seeing you uh, soon at another event. Uh, listeners, I hope they enjoyed that one until next week. Signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's real estate investing show at DarrenBatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. <laughs>